Psalter today is from Psalm 25, verses 4 to 10, read responsibly. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In you I have trusted all the day long. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and love, for they are from everlasting. Remember not the sins of my Remember me according to your steadfast love, and for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. You are gracious and upright, O Lord. Therefore, you teach sinners in your way. You teach the lowly in justice, and teach the lowly your way. All your paths, O Lord, are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep your covenant and your testimonies. Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. Glory to you, O Lord. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. A familiar story, right? In fact, it's such a familiar story that even those that don't go to church or read the Bible understand the words Good Samaritan. 
It comes from this passage and has become a part of our English language. It's used to describe people in our society who do things for others, who do nice things for others, help others. We call them Good Samaritans, right? So who is this Good Samaritan? Is he the out-of-towner who stops to help just because? Or is she the unlikely person who stops to assist the elderly gentleman whose car has a flat tire on Route 22 right by the airport road exit? Could the Samaritan be the one in our midst who seems able to become an, an example for the rest of us? Or someone who interrupts the status quo? Here's another question for you about this story that seems familiar to us, but when it comes to the details, is it really that familiar? Who's the victim in this story anyway? Most of the time we think of the victim as the one who appears to be the normal victim, the mugging victim, the one found on the side of the road, wounded and abandoned. Maybe today that person might be the person whose car was carjacked. And they were dumped out to the curb in that so-called bad part of town. What if the victim is closer to us than all that? What if it's a different kind of victim? What if the victim is sitting right here this morning, but we can't see them bleeding? Maybe even next to us. What's really happening in this story of the so-called Good Samaritan? What's up with the Samaritan, first of all? Do you, do you remember what the first thing the Samaritan did for the victim? Do you remember? Listen again to verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, while traveling, came to him, the guy that was in the ditch wounded, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then the Samaritan put him on his own animal and took care of him. What about that oil and wine? Some have suggested that it might be, could it be that the Samaritan understood so much better than the priest or the other influential person, the Levite, who passed by without helping or crossed the street because they didn't want to encounter this person that needed help? It might be that the Samaritan understood what it meant to pour oil and wine on the wounds. Oh, by the way, Samaritans at this time were the mortal enemy of the ancient Jews of this region. They were the one that nobody trusted. They were the one that nobody even would talk to. Which made it even more shocking that they stopped. This person is supposed to be the worst. Is the best. So what about this wine and on the oil and wine on the wounds? In the same way that we today understand the importance of cleaning the wound and putting antiseptic cream and maybe a band-aid or a gauze pad bandage, could it be that the oil, the olive oil, symbolizes baptism? Is the Samaritan making sure and protecting this unknown child of God left for dead at the side of the road with the cleansing waters of baptism? Or even just a renewal and remembrance of baptism? Listen to what we say when we baptize a baby. For you, little one, the Spirit of God moved over the waters at creation, and the Lord God made covenants with his people. It was for you that the Word of God became flesh and lived among us. 
full of grace and truth. Was the Samaritan what became flesh and lived among us? Then following the oil, does the wine that the Samaritan poured on the wound speaks, does it speak of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist communion, you know? The cup of salvation poured out for you, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Could this be the real hospitality that the Samaritan shows this victim? Could that be the meaning of the story? Maybe, because you see, we're all called to love each other because God first loved us. Maybe that's it. And it says in scripture, we will continue to tell you this good news until it becomes your own. Big responsibility, isn't it? That's the other part. You see, even though many of us have trouble remembering our baptism, we also forget that baptism is an ongoing event. An event that continues, so we need to remember it every time that we gather in some way, and we do in the liturgy. If you pay close attention to the liturgy, the charge of our baptism needs to be in front of us each time we gather as the body of Christ, and we need to remember that baptism. We also need to connect that act of washing with the celebration of the table that we'll do in a few minutes. You see, when we do that, then we will connect our uniqueness as Christians. When we, were, we are sealed by the Spirit in our baptism with the reasons why we need to go beyond our walls, from the table, into the world, to come alongside and assist the victim. What happens when we do that? We not only transform this church, but we transform the world. I didn't forget about the lawyer and his questions to Jesus. That's a big, huge, long topic, and I'll deal with the lawyer and the passages in another sermon, right? It's always good to put off the meeting with the lawyer anyway. Some of you are probably wondering why this passage motivated all this talk about the table and the baptismal font. You said, where'd that come from? Well, it does it for me every time I read it. (laughs) And then I found some other commentaries as I was reading through it, and it seemed to bother them too. So I need to tell you a story that happened some time ago. I can't believe that it's actually 12 years ago. I was on study leave way back in 2007. I attended the Westminster Worship and Music Conference put on by the Presbyterian Associations of Musicians at Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, a beautiful little town just east of Youngstown, Ohio, and north of Pittsburgh on the western side of this state. The theme and subject of the conference was the Great 50 Days. You know, that time that is sometimes called Eastertide, the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. These conferences always pick a season of the church year, like Lent, Advent, Pentecost, or the the Eastertide. They do this to give you ideas for the coming coming seasons of the church, because at this conference are pastors and church musicians and choir members and all those kinds of things. This particular conference focused on the special time in our church calendar, like I said, between those two periods of Easter and Pentecost. It was filled with music, and my soul was filled because I was privileged to sing with a select chamber choir, six sopranos, six altos, six tenors, and eight basses and baritones. We had four days and only eight 
rehearsals, and then we performed a full concert of 12 pieces of very beautiful, complex, spiritually uplifting choral music for all attending the conference. Each day we had worship, followed by workshops and music and more music. We renewed our baptism every day in worship. We had communion every day in worship, twice on Friday. And there was incredible music at every service, handbells and instruments and pipe organ and piano and interpretive dance and percussion ensemble. We ended each day with a short service of evening prayer, a time to remind us, to remind us of the dying and rising rhythm each day in our lives represent. We started the first night with the fire, the light of the world returning to the church and to each one who believes at Easter. The light of Christ for the world has returned in Easter joy. The children's choir moved us deep in our souls by singing the beautiful but simple song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Of course, the kids were way better than me. (laughs) It reminded all of us that we are indeed children of God. During worship on Wednesday morning, during majestic and dramatic postlude on the organ. Okay, this, this chapel was the summertime, and the chapel at this college is in air-conditioned, okay? It was hot, and the windows were opened. So there, this organist was amazing, and he's playing on this huge pipe organ, and it just fills the room. And what happened in the top crescendo was a loud clap of thunder. And right after the thunder came rain and wind, and the rain was literally blowing in the windows that were opened into the sanctuary. The wind that is the Holy Spirit blowing in and through us. And the waters of baptism in the form of rain washing over to cleanse us and wash us and turn the 90 degree day into a 70 degree day. That same service, siblings in Christ from Korea proclaiming the creation story in special and wonderful ways with drums and cymbals and their voices. Handbells and choirs and singing, singing parts in the hymns all the time. Chanting the psalms, singing the responses, constant reminders of the centrality of baptism to who we are as Christians. Water poured into the font at every service, sprinkled on us with evergreen branches, sprinkled on us from the font, sprinkled on us from the front. There was a balcony that ran all the way around. One time they ran around the balcony and showered us with water. Communion by intinction. Communion with a common cup. As I said, communion every day, twice on Friday. What it did is not just for me, but for everyone, it made it so clear when our worship is centered around the table and the baptismal font and surrounded by the word proclaimed and sung, it is then, then that our faith becomes a part of who we are. A part of all that we are. So then every time we take a shower or hear a waterfall or a creek gurgling or an ocean wave crashing or the windshield wipers clearing that rain off on Wednesday 
or going through the car wash. We need to think about and remember our baptism. And each time we eat a meal and break bread together, we understand how the table extends into all our interactions with others, especially those we care about and love. This is particularly true when we're at the fa- the, a table with those that we love, most in our, in our families, our family family or our chosen family. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Most of us have family families and chosen families, and some of us only have chosen families. Some of you will resonate with that and know those whom we know need our love most. Most of us understand that when we bring canned goods for the food drive, we're sharing the table with the least of these. That's a pretty easy connection. The table in the world is the, is the body of Christ working in the world. The bread of life walking and breathing among us down here. But I would remind us that this sharing of the table comes to each of us each time we gather and eat. Around our kitchen tables, at church during the festival, in dinner church, at the brass rail or suburban or Perkins for breakfast after worship. McDonald's drive through when you're in a hurry or pizza delivered to our front door so no one had to cook that night. All are extensions of the table. What all this seems to boil down to is the notion, all of it, not just the food part, but the radical helping all the way back to the Samaritan story. It boils down to this notion of risky compassion, the bravery of the Samaritan to reach out and care in this way. One commentator, the Reverend Kate Matthews, calls it costly risky compassion. She says, when I think about this story, I think not just about people as individuals, long ago but each of us today but of our communities, nations, races especially in this time of renewed and re-energized racial and ethnic hatreds of immigration controversies and the suffering of refugees Kate continues all this suffering all this controversy despite the clear and numerous instructions from the Bible on this particular question for example You shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. Kate Matthews finishes with, But for our purposes, the inheriting eternal life thing, the question arises, are we talking about how to earn a place in heaven after we die? I don't think so. I think we're talking about an inheritance, a gift, a blessing, That we can enjoy here and now the fullness of life, as Jesus says, all of God's good and abundant gifts for our bodies and our souls. A sweet balm, an ointment for our wounded spirits. And gladness and joy for every human heart. We just have to open our hearts, our minds to these gifts all around us. And then, and then share them with one another in gratitude and joy. End quote. Our lives so often intersect with the one found on the side of the road, the one found struggling with what the doctor just told them, the one maybe sitting right next to you in the pew with that smile on their face, but deeply troubled in their heart. Okay for the way that you and you and you and you can share the special peace that comes from sharing the love of Jesus Christ. So where does that leave us? 
It leaves this, this a very unfinished story because this story never gets finished. But there is, a, there is something that we need to do. We need to get about caring for the wounds. Caring for the wounds of this fallen and broken world. It needs our help, doesn't it? Let us pray. The gift you seek most of all, O Lord, is the gift of our love. As we bring our gifts today, may we have grace to offer our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and our souls to you. And as we give all to you, we discover that in the giving, we are receiving more than we can imagine. May the mystery of our love for you and your love in us bring true peace in our lives and to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy